Well, let's open our Bibles tonight to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What a blessing it is to be with you. It's starting to feel a little bit like winter out there, amen, just a little bit. But it's sure enough warm in the house of God. And I appreciate you being here tonight, your faithfulness to the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For the past couple of weeks on Wednesday nights, we've been sort of examining a, a few simple connected thoughts about what we want out of 2020 and how to get there. The old saying holds true that if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And I think there are a great many of us that have ambitions, desires to see 2020 be a year uh, that counts much for the Lord. But the sad truth is, if we do not prepare ourselves and ready ourselves, it's not going to happen by accident. It's not going to happen by coincidence. Uh, It's going to happen by providence, of course, but also by diligence. And so we, over the past Wednesday nights, two Wednesday nights, we've uh, examined this thought, what we need for 2020, what we need to see that 2020 is a year that counts for the Lord, that counts much for Him, in which we uh, grow in our spiritual development, in which we gain victory maybe over some sins or some uh, weaknesses, some infirmities that we uh, deal with and battle with in our lives, some stumbling blocks, and how that we can in 2020 do more for the Lord than we've ever done before. You know, it is a truism of life that everything's either living or dying. It's either growing or diminishing. Nothing stays in a static condition. And our spiritual lives are either enlarging or they are shrinking. One of the two. They're either getting more robust or they are diminishing. And I want in 2020, I want my life to be more for the Lord. I want to do more for the Lord. I want to please Him more. I want it to count. You know, one of these days, every idle word will be called into into account and be brought before our eyes. And I don't want to have to look back on the year 2020 and have to look at it the way I have to look at so many other years in my lives and say, I wish I had done more or I could have done more. I didn't do very much. I want to be able to look at that calendar year and say, you know, I gave my all for the Lord that year and I did everything I could. And I I believe that these uh, three elements... Uh, are things that are necessary. They are vital. They are not optional things. Uh, they are not. They are not merely icing on the cake. They are the very substance of what we will need. Two weeks ago, we talked about the faith that we need for 2020. Uh, whatsoever is not a faith is of sin, and without faith, it's impossible to please Him. That's what the Hebrews writer said. It's impossible. If you're going to please God and try to do it in your flesh and in your own strength, you might as well just not even try. Uh, you may accomplish what you think would be pleasing to him, but it will not, in fact, be pleasing to him. And then we talked last week about the focus that we need for 2020, how to keep our eyes on the prize and how to keep them on the Lord Jesus Christ and on the task at hand. Well, tonight, by the Lord's help and grace, I want us to take a few moments and consider the faithfulness that we need for 2020. You know, the psalmist lamented and decried this fact. He said, a faithful man who can find. And you'll learn that there's a lot of people that can be really, really great for a little bit of time. But it is a rare quality in life, people that will merely live in a pattern of consistency and faithfulness and diligence and dedication to the Lord. And I think that that if you want your your November and December to be as much for the Lord as your January and February, you're going to have to find a way to be faithful. And you're going to have to make up your mind that there are some things that are worthwhile sticking by and, and staying true to. And I want us to notice a few of them tonight. First Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to read just one verse, the very last verse in the chapter, and then we'll pray. And I want to give you five things tonight that I believe we need to be faithful to in this next year. Uh, Paul writing says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor 
is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and thank you for this time. Bless your people and bless your word, Lord, and bless your people through your word. Lord, may I not stand as an obstacle uh, or as a beacon of inadequacy, but Lord, I know you are all sufficient, so help me, Lord, to mortify myself on the altar of your work and help me tonight, Lord, to surrender myself to your will and to your word. And we'll be sure to thank you for whatever the product of it is, Lord. We, we know it'll be what we need. Now, we love you, Lord, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. In 1 Corinthians 15:58, what we really have, I believe, by the Apostle Paul is a description of what faithfulness looks like. People can have varying degrees of, of what faithfulness looks like. Uh, you can look at a day that we live in in which the divorce rate is well over half and tell that some people have different ideas of what faithfulness is and looks like. And certainly you could look on the job site and, and you'd find that there are certain people that have an idea about what faithfulness to a job or a task means and, and other people have different ideas ideas of it. I think as a beginning basis point, what Paul's doing here, he's telling us what faithfulness is, what it looks like. Can I tell you something? Success and faithfulness are not synonymous with each other. There are some people that seem to stumble into great areas or elements of external success. And there are some that come by it dishonestly, and there are some that come by it in a carnal means and manner. By the same token, there's some of the most faithful people I've known in my life. If you were to just judge them by the external visible fruit of their life or ministry, you might would judge them not very faithful. And yet they have stuck by the stuff and they have been true to the Lord and they are laboring and working in the place that God has called them to. And they are really, to my heart and mind, an example of what faithfulness looks like. A lot of young men, young preachers and pastors, they get drawn away in their novice because they conflate and confuse those two things of faithfulness and success. Just because a man is, is drawing a big crowd or just because he has his name uh, on prominent, uh, you know, church, uh, you know, signs or, or on the flyers at the big camp meetings or jubilees, that doesn't necessarily mean he's been faithful to the Lord. Doesn't necessarily mean he's been faithful. Now, that's not to say those things uh, preclude or, or exclude any faithfulness. Just because they enjoy that success doesn't mean that they have to be dishonest or have to be unfaithful or have to be disingenuous. But certainly we should not conflate those two things. And in your spiritual walk in mind, I know most people in this room, there, there's some preachers in the room, but most people in this room uh, really don't have it in their mind to, to see ministry success in that respect. Uh, most just regular church folks. But let me just say this to you, that when you look at people whose lives seem to never be stained by problems or sorrows or difficulties or setbacks, it's easy sometimes to equate that type of success with the idea of faithfulness. But I got news for you. There's some people uh, that the devil, and, and particularly so the faithful crowd, will paint a target on their back and do everything he can to destroy them. Faithfulness, I think, what Paul's doing here is defining basically what it looks like. Let's read this verse again slowly, and then I want to pick apart what these each of these mean. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye, this is what faithfulness is, steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Forasmuch as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now he's listed about five things there. First he describes what we are. We're beloved brethren. 
Then he describes how we ought to conduct ourselves, being steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And then he describes what we should know or what knowledge we should carry with us in this endeavor, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And in these five things, I think we have some components of faithfulness. Let me give them to you very quickly tonight, and then we'll be done. Let me say that the first thing, before he ever even gives an exhortation, notice the description he gives of who he is and who he's talking to. He calls the church at Corinth beloved brethren. Uh, Let me say that uh, first off tonight, if we want this year to be what it needs to be, we need to commit to faithfulness to our people. You say, preacher, who do you mean by our people? I mean God's people. I mean our church family. I mean our our, our Christian brethren. He opens this up. And and by the way, this is after a lengthy uh, theological discourse. He's been talking about the resurrection and the great and glorious work of Christ in defeating death. And he draws that all back down to the practical realm. And he says, because of all that, you and I, what we are, we are brethren. Paul speaks to this body, this group of believers, and he denotes that there's a kinship between them. And he wants them to know that despite what it sometimes is an ugly history betwixt the two of them, that he still counts them to be his brethren in Christ. Can I remind you that the church at Corinth is not a perfect church in any way, shape, fashion, form. In fact, I would say this, that there's probably not much more carnal of a church in the New Testament canon than the church at Corinth. I I mean, for all that we can say about the church at Laodicea and their, their apathy and their complacency, there were things going on at the church of Corinth that Paul said were not even named amongst the Gentiles. And by the way, when he pins this letter down, that stuff still ain't been settled yet. You come to 2 Corinthians and he's received word that they've dealt with those sin problems in the church. But when he pins these words right here, these are still broken, messed up people. And he says, that's my crowd. Those are my beloved brethren. Can I tell you something? If, if your faithfulness to your church family and to God's people only extends so far as they are perfect, it won't go very far at all. Because the truth is, we're all messed up. We all have problems. We, every one of us, by the way, he would talk later about the church at Corinth, how some in that church body would boast themselves against Paul, would criticize Paul, would lie about Paul, would tell Paul, uh, tell others that Paul was a charlatan, that he was not the real deal, that he was a fake, that he was a phony. These are the people that Paul says uh, to the church at Corinth, my beloved brethren. This is a man that even when it wasn't easy, he loved the brethren. And can I tell you, it's not always going to be easy to love the brethren. Uh, notice a couple things. Notice first off his association. He says, my beloved brethren. He doesn't just say, therefore, oh, beloved brethren, or therefore, beloved. He says, they're my beloved brethren. Can I tell you something? When you got born again by the grace of God, God's people became your people for better or for worse. Man, I love what Ruth says whenever she's talking to Naomi in the Old Testament. She's committing and pledging herself to follow Naomi back to Bethlehem. And Ruth said, entreat me not to leave thee in Ruth 1.16 or to return from following after thee. She said, for whither thou goest, I will go. And whither thou lodgest, I will lodge. She says, thy people shall be my people and thy God, my God. She said, Ruth, whatever your people are, they're my people for better or for worse. Uh, We better get it in our heads that whether we want to claim them or not, uh, saved people born by the blood of Christ, born by the grace of God, part of the family of God, they're our family. Even when they hurt us, even when they mess up, 
even when they make mistakes, even when they fall into sin like some of these had, even when they uh, are, are ugly or malicious, even like some of these were, Paul did not hesitate for one moment. He said, hey, they may be messed up, but that's still my crowd. They're my people. I notice his association. I notice his affection. He calls them beloved. And I love that word for a couple reasons. One, because, of course, it does denote a warm affection. That's what he's communicating. Therefore, my beloved brethren. But it also sort of hints at the idea of divine affection. Uh, the, uh, John would say that you and I have been accepted into the beloved. In other words, that was in his mind a status, a, a position, a place that the child of God resided in, in which they partook in that loving relationship with God the Father. And Paul uses that same word here. It's almost to imply this. They're my crowd, and they may not always be easy to love, but I love them because God loves them. Let me tell you, if God can love us, with us having done Him the way we've done Him, then surely we can love us with us having done us the way we've done us. In other words, God has set us a perfect example. And this is the desire of God. John 13, 34, Christ said, A new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. And he even went further. He said, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. He said, A, a demarking quality of who belongs to me and who doesn't is the folks that love one another. Love's a messy thing sometimes. But Paul says, hey, if God can love them, I can love them. And then notice his allegiance. He calls them brethren. Brethren. I've been blessed with a very good family. And, uh, I, you know, I'm proud that I've got the family that I've got. Uh, but uh, very often people, when they are not blessed with a family the way that I am, uh, whatever problems may arise does not change that status, that, that condition of them being brethren. Brethren denotes a connection concerning blood. Now, I'm not saying there's not a spiritual truth that is deeper here. In fact, I've been studying on those transcendental truths, and we may even Sunday morning talk about when Christ said, who is my mother and who are my brethren. But there is there is an, an equal parallel between both the physiological uh, qualification and the spiritual qualification. Your brethren are your brethren because uh, they're your brothers and sisters by blood. Well, guess what? Uh, your Christian family are just as equally more so your brother or sister by blood. By holier blood, by more innocent blood, by precious blood. Not your blood, not my blood, but the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and Paul said, hey, listen, that crowd, that's my crowd. And I'm going to stick by them. Now, we all have uh, terrestrial and temporal relationships, connections. We have we have co-workers and, and some of us have family that uh, may be family by genetics, but they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm certainly not saying that we should jettison those connections, but I am saying this, that the people of God need to have a special allegiance and devotion to our brethren in the faith. Paul said it this way, that we are to do good unto all men, especially those who are of the household of faith. Relationships are a relative thing. I love everybody in this room. I don't love you the way I love my wife. Some of y'all said, thank the Lord. <laughs> I love everybody in this room. I do. You're my people. I don't love you the way I love my, my wife. My love for my wife does not mean I don't love you. But I, but, and I don't have to choose betwixt you. And if you make me choose, I'll tell you who's going to win. She's going to win. Relationships are a relative thing. 
And there's nothing wrong with having those those temporal connections, but they should never displace what is our spiritual allegiance. So I think we need to be faithful to our people. And by that, I mean to God's people, to save people. Uh, We shouldn't be ugly, lost people. We shouldn't be uncaring or unfeeling towards them. But we need to recognize that our supreme, our primary allegiance lies first to the Lord Jesus and then to His people, which are our people, to our brethren in the faith. So there needs to be a faithfulness to our people. Not only that, he says then this, be ye steadfast. Now, when I think of the word steadfast, I think of somebody that is committed to a cause and will not be moved from it. And I would say this, that we need to, in 2020, we need to be faithful to God's purpose in our life. We need to recognize that we don't walk this earth just to float around it like a pinball. We walk this earth for a reason, for a very distinct reason. Now, I can give you a a broad general cause for which all of us live and breathe and move and have our being. We're to be a testimony for Jesus Christ. We're to reach people with the gospel. We're to glorify Him in all that we do. But I'm saying every single one of us, we're not here for no reason. God has us here for a reason. We need to find that reason and fulfill that reason. Once we found that reason, that calling in our life, that thing for which God has created us, that avenue in which God is using us, we need to be steadfast to it. Uh, the sad truth is there, there, there's two ways that people tend to approach a new year. Some people approach a new year and they say, I'm going to ramp things up. And some people approach it and say, I'm going to back things away. I'm going to dial things down. Now listen, I understand we all enter different seasons in life and we must be realistic with our strength and, and endurance and capability. And I, I'm, not, I'm not blind to that, but I am saying this. When it comes to this thing of serving God, we ought not say I'm backing away. But always say, hey, listen, if I, if, if I let everything else in my life go, I'm not going to let my work for God go. Now, you say, preacher, you saying I should let everything? No, I'm not saying you should let everything go. I believe you can put God first. He'll give you the strength. Do what you need to do. Uh, old Dr. Sotler used to say duties never conflict. And I, that, that's stuck with me. That's stuck on the back of my eyelids. And I see it every time I close my eyes. Duties never conflict. If I'm doing what I need to be doing for God, God will give me the strength to do what I need to do in my secular or temporal responsibilities. But if a choice must be made, Paul says, be ye steadfast. Don't allow yourself to be pushed out of the lane that you're running in. Commit yourself. I thought it was interesting. I I noticed a couple times that this word steadfast is used in the Bible. You know, a basic uh, rule or a basic guideline or tenet of Bible study is what's called the rule of first mention. And what that means is usually you find something the first time it's found in the Bible and it will typically carry certain qualities or meanings that will, will carry through and can apply to everything else unless there's been some doctrinal or dispensational shift in, in the landscape of, of theology. In other words, for instance, the first time you find blood in the Bible or those skins in the Garden of Eden, it's to cover uh, man's sin and it's to make him fit for the presence of God. Well, guess what? The blood all the way through the Bible, that's one of the things that it does. So certain qualities you pick up, well, that's true of just about anything. And you know the first time, it's interesting. Uh, this little book of Ruth has a lot for us because the first time that word steadfast is used is in the book of Ruth. And you know, uh, Ruth is standing there talking to Naomi. And she has poured her heart out in verse 16, which we read just a moment ago. And Naomi looks at her and says, Ruth, there's nothing for you in Bethlehem. Your life is done. Why don't you just go on, marry somebody else? There's no point in following me. The Bible says this in verse 18, when she saw, when Naomi saw that she, that Ruth, 
when she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. Can I say it this way? We need to be steadfast against the discouragers in our life. That's what Naomi was trying to do. She's trying to say, Ruth, there's no point. It's a pipe dream. My people are never going to accept you. And, and you think that uh, you, a Moabitess coming up into, into Israel, that you're going to find somebody to love you and, and want to marry you. There's no hope, Ruth. But God had been doing something in Ruth's heart. And Ruth wasn't just walking away from a, from, from a, a gravesite of, of her husband. Ruth wasn't just walking away from, uh, from the land of her home. She was walking away from paganism and from darkness. And she was walking into the light of God's revelation. And she had committed that her new life wasn't just another husband, but her new life was to know the God that Naomi claimed to know. And she had determined that this was her purpose in life, was to go to Bethlehem. And to live and to be a help to Naomi and to find the will of God for her life. That was her purpose. Naomi says, don't go, Ruth. Ruth, Ruth, though, was steadfast in her mind. You're going to have people that are going to try to discourage you. You're going to have people, they'll come along beside you and they'll sit there, they'll say, oh man, you've done so much for God. Why don't you just, why don't you let somebody else, why don't you just let somebody else step up? You'll have somebody will come along and say, you know, there's a lot of people could be serving God. Why does it always have to be you? You'll have people come up and say, well, you know, you got so much going on in your life that, that, that why would you take it upon you? And people that are trying to dissuade and discourage you from serving the Lord. We need to be like Ruth. We need to be steadfastly minded against the discouragers. I found it again in First Peter chapter 5. Verse number 8 says this. You know this verse. You could probably quote it. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now, how do we deal with him? Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Uh, we need to be steadfast against the discouragers, people that try to give us an out or, or, or give us a reason to walk away from serving God. But we need to purpose in our minds to be uh, steadfast against the devil because he'll do everything he can to stop us. Listen, right now, and I hope this is true, I hope this is true, right now your commitment uh, is resolved, your passion for the Lord is is ramped up and wound up, and you want 2020 to be something meaningful and something for God, it's easy in January, it's easy in February. Uh, but when the devil sees that you've made your mind up to make this year different than every other year, he's going to do everything, he's going to throw everything he can against you. I said earlier in the opening statements of the message tonight that uh, we oftentimes quote people having a life of ease with the idea of faithfulness or, or Christian virtue or, or, or dedication. But the reality is when a person begins to live for God and begins to really do something for God, that's when the devil sets up and pays attention. That's when he decides that he's going to march his forces against us. That's when he purposes that spiritual warfare is on the rise. We need to make our minds up that we're going to be steadfast. Don't let him win. Don't let him win. He's going to try to win. Don't let him win. Some of us have let him win in our lives in years past. Uh, we've held out. We've been faithful. We've stuck in for a while, but eventually he wore us down. Don't let him win. Make your mind up that God has more for you than the devil has. Don't let him win. We need to be steadfast. So uh, we, we need to be faithful in our purpose. Not only that, he says we're to be unmovable. Unmovable. I, I wrote it down this way. We need to be faithful in our position. That's what unmovable means, doesn't it? You're, you're occupying a space and a place. You're in a position and refuse to be moved from it. 
I thought about what that means. What exactly should we not be movable concerning? You know, there are some things in life we should be movable about. For instance, if you're driving down the interstate and you see my car coming on the on-ramp and you're in that far right lane and my blinker's on, I'd appreciate it if you were movable and got out of my lane. Amen? Now, that ain't for you. That's for the fellow that wouldn't let me in when I was coming on the interstate tonight. But he ain't here, so you've got to hear it. There are some ways in which we should be movable, of course. Uh, I, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, it, it's like the fellow said, uh, you know, about quarreling with his wife and getting in arguments. He said, I don't apologize unless I know for sure 100 percent that I'm wrong. He said, and I told my first wife that and I told my second wife that and my third wife. And he said, and I'll tell my fourth wife that when the time comes. There are some areas in life we have to be, but there are some things we shouldn't be movable in. What are some things? Well, I, I wrote these down. I think we need to be unmovable concerning the word of God, word of God. Listen to what Paul said in Colossians 1.23. He said, if you continue in the faith, grounded. This is what he said a Christian needs to be. Grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Paul said we shouldn't move away from our position on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It even broadens out further, not just concerning the gospel particularly, but the little book of Jude was written for this distinct purpose. Jude opens his book. He says in verse 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, he said, I was going to write unto you about the gospel. But he said it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now, the word faith, you know this in your Bible, it denotes uh, sort of uh, two things. It denotes a, a, our, our experiential uh, leaning upon or belief in God, having faith in something. But sometimes the word faith is used as it relates to a body of belief, a body of, of doctrine, a system of belief. And it's obvious that's what Jude is talking about because he says the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. He's saying that body of doctrine and belief. He said, I don't want you to move away from it. I don't want you to give it. I want you to earnestly contend for it, fight for it. He goes down in verse 20 and says, ye beloved, uh, but ye beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Jude said, don't move. Don't move. Uh, listen, I, I'm more than happy to change my position if my position is wrong. But this idea that we need an eclectic plethora of perspectives and uh, listen what has that done for our society have we got more confusion or less confusion today our public school systems tell our kids that there's that you can't know anything that there is no real truth that everything's relative which is a marxist tenant of relativism moral relativism ideological relativism and all it's done is unmoored our society there's some things we shouldn't move from if we know that we're and it's not about us being right i can be wrong but god's never wrong And we shouldn't move from what God says is true. So I think concerning the word of God, but then I think concerning the will of God, the will of God. Now, listen, I understand, again, that the will of God sometimes takes us in seasons in life. There was a time when the will of God for Paul was to be in the the Asian desert. There was a time when the will of God for Paul was to be planting churches uh, throughout Europe. There was a time when it was the will of God for uh, Paul to be in prison, to be penning uh, epistles. I, I understand the will of God takes us through different seasons. But I'm saying when we know something's the will of God, we shouldn't move from it. Uh, Ephesians 5, 15 says this, See then that you walk circumspectly. 
not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. In other words, Paul says, hey, things matter because we live in wicked days and we only have so much life to live and we need to make it count. And then he says this, wherefore, in light of that, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. We need to find the will of God and do it. And let me tell you something. I understand there's waiting seasons in discovering the will of God. I, I wish I could tell you that every time I want to know God's mind, I could pray one prayer and say, God, tell me, and a voice would speak from heaven, uh, or a fax would come across the machine, or I'd get an email in my inbox. You know it doesn't work that way, and I do too. But I do recognize that uh, if if God won't disclose his will to me, it's not a matter of God getting some sadistic pleasure out of our lack of understanding. It's not a matter of God seeking to play hard to get. It's a matter of timing. And when the time comes, God will disclose His will to us. He will make it known. Because guess what? Guess who wants you to do the will of God as much or more than you do? God wants you to do the will of God as much or more than you do. So this idea that the will of God is some great mysterious thing that can only be come to by great soul searching, I don't believe is true. I, I believe if our heart is ready for the will of God, and I believe if our path is ready for the will of God, God will reveal it. We need to find the will of God for our life and do it. We need to find it and do it. Bob Jones Sr. said success is finding the will of God and doing it. That's the definition of success. Paul said this in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God desires for us to know His will and to do it. Once we know the will of God, we shouldn't be moved from it. I've committed in my heart that, listen, if if the will of God moves me, I'll go. But I'm not going to let the devil scare me off. I'm not going to let people scare me off. I'm not going to let problems scare me off. I'm not going to let confusion scare me off. If I know the will of God, I'm pledged to do it. I want to remain faithful to that. I don't want to leave just because things get tough. I don't want to leave just because uh, there's a shinier apple on the tree in the next field. I don't want to leave uh, because I because somebody wants somebody to. I, I want to do the will of God. I'd rather be in the will of God in the midst of a storm, in the midst of a tornado, than be sitting on a sandy beach outside of the will of God. We need to find the will of God and do it. And then notice this. He says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We need to be faithful in our productivity. Productivity. Faithful in working and laboring and serving the Lord. I thought of two things here. Let me just give them to you very quickly. We need to be faithful in our productivity by laboring in the Lord. And and by that I mean doing God's work. I love what he says here. He does not say always abounding in the fruit of the Lord. Or in fruitfulness for the Lord. Or in success. You see, you and I, we can't control how much fruit but we can control how faithful we are. It's up to God. And Paul learned this truth and communicated it very clearly. He said that one uh, planteth, another watereth. But guess what? God giveth the increase. We've made it our job to do God's job, to, to make the increase. And that's true of our uh, as far as it relates to ministry. But beyond that, even in our spiritual walk, our spiritual life, uh, as we're praying and asking God to do things and seeking the Lord's face about problems in our family or problems in our finances, we've made it our job to create miracles. God never asked us to do that. He says it's our job to labor. It's our job to, to water. It's our job to plant. It's our job to till the soil. It's our job. To, it's God's job to give the increase. This, of course, parallels a a very obvious 
physical and, 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 uh, you know, biological truth that the farmer, he can plant and the farmer can water and the, uh, and the farmer can fertilize. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's up to God whether the seed grows, whether the seed grows. We were growing the garden this year. I'll share this with you real quick. And we, we planted two rows of beans and, um, we, I don't know why I did that. I don't know how many beans one man needs, but we planted two rows of beans. And the most glorious thing happened. One of them didn't take at all. I don't know what happened to it. Now you say, preacher, why is that great? Well, because two rows of beans sounds real good in April. But it don't sound so good in July. <laughs> and But we planted these rows of beans exactly the same. I mean, there was literally no difference whatsoever in the way we planted. I, don't, I guess the bird saw us plant the second row and, 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 and took a feast. I don't know what happened exactly. Two rows of beans planted right, I mean, no further apart than this pulpit is, planted right side by side, same soil, same process, same everything, bought from the same place, came in the same kind of bag, one took and one did not. You know, that's a lot how it is serving the Lord. It's not our job to cause the beans to come up. It's our job to put them in the ground. It's our job to prepare the soil. It's our job to do those things. And there's even a certain way in which we can't even, uh, we can try to amend the soil and we can try to ready the soil, but at the end of the day, God's got to make the soil do what it does. I'm saying this, what we can control is our laboring in the Lord. You and you alone decide whether you serve God, whether you live for God. I love what Christ himself said in John 4, 34. Jesus said unto them, unto his disciples, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Not my meat is to win lots of people or my meat is to draw lots of crowds or my meat is to draw and produce lots of fruit, but rather my meat is to do the will and to finish his work. Christ said, if I can do that, I'm content. That's what I, that's what I'm sustained upon. I wonder if you and I are sustained upon the simple thought that we're doing what God asks of us. I wonder how many of us could be satisfied though nobody in the world ever noticed. If we just knew that we were doing what God required of us, we need to be faithful in laboring in the Lord. But then I would say this, we need to be faithful in laboring for the Lord. You say, well, what's the distinction, preacher? Well, there's a lot of folks that's serving God, but they're not serving God for God. They're serving for their own sense of, of fulfillment. They're serving that men might see and appreciate and applaud. They're serving, and there's some, uh, particularly in the areas of ministry, that might be serving for filthy lucre's sake or for power or, or, or influence. But, you know, we can determine in our hearts that whatever God puts in our path day by day, we can do that task for the glory of God and doing it for the Lord. That's what Paul said in Colossians chapter 3. By the way, he's writing to servants, to slaves. And he, he says in verse 17, Whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. And in verse 23, speaking directly to servants, and he says, Whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Some of you think sometimes, and there's a great enamoring and, uh, and, and obsession, uh, particularly in the Pentecostal crowd and, and in the contemporary crowd with this idea of, of women preachers. We know there's no such thing as a, as a woman preacher. We know that uh, the Bible uh, teaches clearly about that, and there's this great enamoring with that. I think a lot of that is born from this notion, this idea, this glorifying of the work of ministry as it relates to success. I think there's a lot of ladies that look at that and think, well, I want to do something meaningful for God. And I think it probably, some of them, it comes from a place of sincerity. And they say, well, I want to do something. I want to, I, I want to do something for God. I want to reach people. I want to this. I want to that. 
But some of them would say, well, how's it meaningful if I am a keeper at home or how's it meaningful if I'm ministering to my family or how's it meaningful even if I have no family, if I'm if I'm laboring in whatever area of life or responsibilities I have. Can I remind you of something? Don't get mad at me when I say this. You are you promise some of y'all did. You know what these people that Paul would have been writing to these these were these were servants. They would have spent their day doing things like washing dishes. They would have spent their day doing things like tending a home. They would have spent their days doing things like tending crops, tending fields. They would have spent their day doing things like tending lives. The very menial things that we oftentimes so despise. And we say, well, that doesn't matter. That's not important. That's not meaningful in the grand scheme of things. Why is that significant? There are a great many people that make shipwreck of domestic life because they grow obsessed with this idea of being lauded in the world's eyes. Listen, whatever the will of God is for you, find it and do it. But I would just say this, if the will of God includes something uh, that the ladies on the views scorn, so what? Joy Behar can just sit there and be mad over the fact that you're content in whatever your calling of life is. They can spit at you. They can spit insult and disdain. And the editorial board for big newspapers can spit disdain at the idea that you do something as menial as raising a child or, or attending a home. But the very people that Paul's writing to are people that are doing what we would consider menial tasks. And he says to them, whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Knowing, listen to this now, this is Bible. Go ahead and get mad at me. Don't get mad at God. Go ahead and get mad at me. Knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. I'm saying these people were doing some of the most insignificant, uh, seemingly unimportant tasks Known to man. They were of the lowest possible social class a person could be apart from being a prisoner. And Paul looks at him. He says, you know what you're doing? You can do for God. You can do it for the Lord. You can be a testimony. We we don't have to look much further in the life of Joseph to see this in practice, who himself was a prisoner. You know what Joseph was? He was a prisoner and he, he became the best prisoner a man could be. And that's how he wound up on the throne of Egypt. It's okay. It's Wednesday night. I didn't expect us to do backflips. I'm comfortable preaching like this if you're comfortable listening like this. I'm just telling you that everything we do, we need to be laboring in the Lord, yes, but we also need to be laboring for the Lord in whatever we're doing. Whatever areas, whatever elements of life, we need to be doing it for the Lord. Guess what? You'll find it a lot more fulfilling when you're doing it for Him. People ain't always going to appreciate what you're doing. In fact, most of the time, people won't appreciate what you're doing, especially if you're doing what some would perceive uh, perceive to be insignificant or menial tasks. But guess what? The Lord always knows. I like what the Hebrews writer said. He said in Hebrews 13, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That wasn't what I was going to read, but boy, it sounds good, don't it? What I was going to read is where the Hebrews writer says in chapter number 6 that God is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love. He pays attention to everything. Let me give you one more thing and I'm done tonight. I preach longer than I meant to. Let me say that we need to be faithful not only in our productivity. You can't, you can't control the outcome, but you can control the input. You don't control the output, but you control the input. You're the only person that controls the input. We need to be faithful in our productivity, but we need to be faithful in His promises. I like how He closes it. He says this, For as much as ye know, 
that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. In other words, we can only be faithful if we are armed with this knowledge. Faithfulness is rooted. You've heard me say this before, but faithfulness, our faithfulness, is an outgrowth of God's faithfulness. Just as every good quality about us is really an outgrowth of the life of Christ in us. In other words, if I have faith, I only have faith because of the faith of Christ. If I'm holy, guess what? I'm holy because He's holy. Be ye holy for I am holy, saith the Lord. Everything about my life that is worthwhile is merely an outgrowth of the life of Christ in me. And that's true for faithfulness as well. Faithfulness must be rooted in the faithfulness of God. And we can only be faithful in as much as we recognize that He is ever faithful. So what do you mean? Well, I notice a couple things here. I think they go hand in hand. I think we need to be faithful concerning the promise of His return. Of His return. And here in a second, I, and I'll go ahead and tell you, here in a second I'm going to say a word about His reward. But guess when His reward comes? His, his reward comes when His return comes. That's when His reward comes. And I think what Paul's saying here, he says, you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He's just got through talking about, and in fact, he had said, you can go back just, uh, you know, about six, seven verses, and Paul says, talks about the return of the Lord. In verse 51, he says, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead in Christ, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. He's been talking about the return of the Lord. He's been talking about the second coming. He's been talking about the rapture. And it's in that context that he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, he is directly speaking about the fact that, guess what? Jesus is coming soon. So be steadfast, unmovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. We say it all the time. We remind you of it relentlessly. I hope we sound like a broken record. I hope I hope sometimes I hope we say it so much it sometimes does get tiresome because we need to be reminded of it that much and more. If we ever get to the place that you get annoyed with how many times we announce that the Lord's coming back, I'm going to tell Brother Jim, all right, now start doing it twice a week. Because we're just about to get where we need to be. We need to always be mindful of it. The promise of his return. I've got a bunch of verses here I could read. I'll read one 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 or two for you. First John 3, 2, Beloved, now we're the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know. In other words, God's working in us, in our life, and we're not quite there yet. We want to be there. We desire to be there. But we, we live and we grow and we operate in the faith of this. He says, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And he don't stop there. He says in verse 3, and every man... That hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. In other words, the faithfulness of the believer is rooted in the truth of the second coming. That we know Jesus is returning at any moment. Not Jesus could return at any moment. Jesus is returning at any moment. So what's the distinction, preacher? Well, the distinction is he's sitting there ready on go. Not even the son knows when he's coming back. That means he's in a perpetual state of readiness to return. He's coming back at any moment. So I think we need to be faithful in the promise of His return. And then finally, and I'm done, in the promise of His reward. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain. It's not empty. It's not meaningless. It's not pointless. Has it ever dawned on you how short this life is? I know that as you get older in life and, and closer to that side than you are to this side, that, that it becomes more of a reality. But maybe it would behoove us to all just dwell in that truth Every now and then. Maybe spend a few minutes each day thinking about how small this life is relative to the eternity that we will live in. It's unfathomable. 
Think about how short this life is. Whatever labors that we were engaged in, Paul calls them a, a moment of light, our light affliction, which is but a moment. Worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I'm telling you this, that you're only living in the, in the time of responsibility for a short while. But one of these days you're going to pass from responsibility to reckoning to reward. And you're going to live a lot longer in the reward than you've ever lived in the responsibility. It says, listen, we need to stay faithful. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. And when he does, he's coming with his reward in his hand. He's coming to, for, for a judgment. And he's coming for a reckoning. But he's also coming to reward his people. And here's the verse I was going to quote a moment ago. God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name. He goes on to say, in light of that, he said, uh, we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In other words, if we want to be faithful, we need to keep our eyes on those truths. He's coming back. He's coming back soon. I don't know what 2020 holds for you, but I do know you can live it for God. And I do know you can stay faithful to him if you keep your eyes upon him. Three things we need. Faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Focus. We've got to be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, keeping our eyes on him and on the work he's called us to and faithfulness. It's going to take faithfulness. Nobody's going to make 2020 count through unfaithfulness. It'll require faithfulness to the Lord and to his people, and to his calling, and to his promises. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to the piano. If God's spoken to your heart, you know you don't have to wait for the first note to be played. You can react and respond to him just immediately as soon as the Lord tugs on your heart. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify your, your son. We ask it in Christ's name.